Hello and welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. This is show number two and my name is Philip Thompson. I teach voice and speech at the University of California, Irvine. With me here today is Eric Armstrong. Hi there. Uh, hi, Phil. Uh, yes, I'm Eric Armstrong, and I'm from York University in Toronto, where I teach voice, speech, text, and accents and dialects to the acting conservatory students in the MFA and BFA programs. So what are we going to talk about today, Phil? Well, I thought we might start by just reminding everybody, since this is show number two, about what this show is all about. Excellent. So this uh, is your brainchild, and uh, I think it comes out of the fact that you and I enjoy talking about the sounds of speech. We're both voice and speech teachers, and uh, we uh, like to get into the nitty-gritty of each sound. Uh, I think it was your idea that we uh, talk a little bit about the history of the sounds, their formation, and also what we might hear in terms of the variation from language to language, accent to accent. Yeah, I think uh, it's fun to get to know the sounds a little bit better. And ultimately, reading about it, is that's a bore. It's, it's hearing it, talking <laughs> yes. about it. That's, that's the fun part for me. In fact, I have on my desk here a, a big black book called The Correction of Defective Consonant Sounds. Mm. And that's the definition of a bad time, I think. But uh, I suppose that's written from the point of view of a speech-language pathologist who's looking at, at uh, the kinds of sounds that people hear as being somehow wrong. And that can be very helpful exactly. for those of us who've not been exposed to a lot of people having speech challenges, uh, the kinds of challenges that come up a lot of the time. Yeah. So the next thing that I think we ought to get into is talking about what this particular show is about, this episode is about. We've uh, decided that we're going to go back and forth between vowels and consonants, and our first show was about E, and today we're going to actually deal with two consonants because they're very, very similar. That is P and B, or as we might call them, P and B. Mm. The, the, that pair is what we call a cognate pair, that they're very similar except for one quality, and that's whether your voice is engaged or not, whether your vocal folds are vibrating. So there's a whole lot in saying P and B that we might need to do a couple of digressions about. Mm. And the first one really is uh, thinking through the idea of the letter P and the difference between orthography and uh, phonemic or phonetic analysis. Mm. So uh, orthography is a big word for spelling. It's the way we represent spoken language in the written form, and the conventions of spelling are set forth by the rules of grammar and by reference books, things like uh, dictionaries. Uh, we, we compare that to phonemic or phonetic analysis. That's the study of the sounds of language, one from the point of view of uh, the sort of thinking behind the sounds, that would be the phonemic analysis, compared to a phonetic analysis, which is a detail analysis of how those sounds are actually made in your mouth. Um, and uh, 
when we do phonemic and phonetic analysis, we may use symbols to represent the sounds. Um, frequently, those symbols are from the International Phonetic Alphabet. And that system of, of notating the sounds of language uh, uses conventional uh, symbols that originally came from orthographic spellings of those uh, sound-symbol relationships. Um, but uh, the, the, they're a little bit more specific, perhaps a little bit more detailed. And uh, the International Phonetic Alphabet also has the advantage of little, little helper symbols that, uh, diacritic marks they're called, that give a little, perhaps a little bit more detail about how specifically that sound is made in the specific instance we're talking about. And so, we may be talking about that a little bit later, absolutely. Those, those little details. There's, there's another idea in this introduction to P and B, or P and B. Uh, I said that they were consonants, and last week we dealt with the vowel E. Last week I took a shot at uh, explaining the difference between vowels and consonants. Uh, do you want to give it a go? And uh, I think your version will be similar to mine. Well, I, I, I'd like to start with a metaphor, and that I think of speech being like a river uh, that flows out of your mouth, and that it is continuously flowing, more or less. Uh, sometimes when a thought stops, we turn off the tap and the water dries up. <laughs> um, and hopefully that won't happen to me too much today. Um, but uh, a vowel is perhaps a shaping of that river stream, that narrowing or widening of the stream. But a consonant is actually like a, a series of rapids. Um, uh, a consonant could be a dam that blocks the sound. It could be a dam where the water flows over top of it. Uh, it could be a rock in the, the river that creates turbulence, and so we get white water. Um, or it could be a rock hidden under the surface of the water, and the, the, the water flows over it without actually becoming turbulent. So the dam is the kind of consonant we're talking about today. We call those stop plosives or stops or plosives, depending on who's talking about them. Um, but the, 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 the sound is stopped in our mouths, and uh, it does not flow out until a moment of release. And in that moment of release, it could release in a number of different ways. So That's, uh, that's perfect. And in fact, I think I'm going to be stealing that metaphor in the future. The, it's you, it's you, a handy one. <laughs> Indeed, and uh, uh, the, the, the articulation that we're going to be working on today is, as you say, uh, a special one because it has three different components to it. Not all of the consonants are that way. That is to say, the flow is stopped, and then there's a buildup of pressure and, and explosion, and then finally there could be a little puff of air coming out. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, that's why we have that term that you mentioned, stop plosive. Uh, one could do the stop part of it, I suppose, or the plosive part of it. There, there's another component of any plosive that we often forget about, but I think is really important to bring in, and that is that there's always another articulation of the velum closing mm -hmm. off the velopharyngeal port, or in other words, the nasal passages are closed off at the back. Mm. And, and that's closed it, off by the lifting of the soft palate, or velum. Exactly. Right? Exactly right. And that, the fancy name for that uh, hole is the velopharyngeal port, but it really is just the gate to the nose. Mm. 
Now, if you didn't manage to close that or you had a condition that didn't allow for you to lift your soft palate, what, what would happen to this end? Well, essentially, you wouldn't be able to build up the pressure that it would allow you to make it explode. So what actually often happens in my Correction of Defective Consonant Sounds book, it'll uh, mention this, that instead of a buildup of air which explodes through the lips, in the case of P, you'll get people just exhaling those air through their nose. Mm. Uh, right. The English sound that we have that's closest to B in P and B is M, of course, which is with your soft palate released. So uh, depending if you're going for a B or a P, you'd get either air for the P or an M-like sound with the, the yeah. B. So I suppose somebody would say peanut butter instead of peanut butter. Right. All right. Uh, there's one of those famous uhs. Uh, I think it might be a useful thing to actually walk through the flow of, uh, as you say, the flow of the river in making either one of these sounds. Mm. So the, the first part of any of these sounds that we'll be talking about is the flow of some air pressure. And in the case of an unvoiced, that air pressure goes up through the vocal tract, the velum closes off the nasal passages, the lips close together, a little bit of pressure is built up, the elastic tissues of the mouth are pushed apart, and then they reach a point of release, that air explodes out through the lips, and then there's often or possibly a little bit of air flow before a new sound starts. Mm. So, p on its own, there's potentially a little bit of air right there. To some degree, we're setting up for the sound that follows. We're anticipating the vowel that the P is going into. So yes. our tongues, our, our oral tract, is formed into the shape of that vowel that follows. So when the, the lip explodes, we're ready for that following vowel. Uh, if we were going into pa, like in the word put, uh, we'd, we'd be set up for it, but we don't necessarily start the voicing of that vowel immediately following it. Whereas in the voiced form, uh, the, the only difference between the p and the b is when that voicing begins. So in the case of b, voicing is beginning almost instantaneously, and you could say that as the air is flowing into my mouth, building up pressure, there's a possibility of voicing as that air flows into my mouth, even though it's not flowing out into the world yet. Mm. So if I slowed it down, I'd get b. B. Yeah, that we're, we're voicing, building up the voicing behind our lips. But generally that doesn't happen in English, does it? That, no. Uh, Non-English non languages often have this sort of pre-voicing on b that we don't have, whereas uh, uh, our B initially, in, in the, at the beginning of words, tends to just have the voicing at the moment of release. Um, so the one thing that I, I really quite like about P and B uh, and, and this class of consonants is that much of what is uh, identifiable about this sound is actually not a sound at all. It's an absence of sound. Um, and that in, in terms of that flow of the river, that damming, that stopping of the flow for a 
brief moment uh, actually creates a, a tiny pocket of silence. And it's quite neat to look at uh, sound on, on a computer when we're doing recordings. You can spot the stop consonants because they're, they're the little moments of silence in the middle of the flow of speech. You mentioned uh, that w this happens when uh, a p or a b is at the beginning of a word, and I thought it might be worthwhile to talk about uh, where we find these consonants. Mm. Usually when we're talking about consonants, we'll be talking about initial, medial, or final positions, and we may recognize the consonant by its action, but it may come off differently, whether it's in the beginning, the middle, or the end of a word. Mm. And that has to do, I think, very much with your metaphor of the flowing river. And I agree. Likewise, uh, this explosion of air, this absence of sound, is intensified or not based on how much air pressure is going through. Mm -hmm. And so that, how much air pressure is going through, has to do, to some degree, with the importance of the syllable where this occurs. Uh, and where in the syllable, whether it is... Uh, initiating the syllable or whether it's at the end of the syllable it's uh, an indicator of, of the sort of checking off the end of a syllable so uh, uh, an initial P or B is likely to be far more energized uh, at the beginning of a stressed syllable than it would be at the beginning of an unstressed syllable absolutely well on my list of uh, what we're set to talk about here I have spelling uh, and that's separate from phonetic notation. Uh, I thought I might take a little detour into the history of this sound, partially because it's, it's so very simple. Uh, the, the letters that we have in the Roman alphabet, uh, the Western alphabet, if you will, uh, come from Phoenician and Greek sources. And you can trace the shapes of those letters, and sometimes their change in pronunciation all the way back. Uh, the p sound uh, was originally represented by something more like a staple, and in Greek uh, you'll see a, a pi. Uh, but that twisted and bent and turned a little bit and turned into the symbol that we now see as a p, a straight line with a loop at the top. The b uh, also did a similar thing. The uppercase b uh, actually turned on its side and flipped over on its passage to modern uh, Western alphabets. But both sounds uh, were pronounced essentially in the same way thousands of years ago and today. The phonetic notation, uh, my students are always relieved to know, is just the same, just what they would expect. Uh, the IPA symbol is exactly what they would predict based on their ability to write and speak in English. That is to say, the P is a P, and the B is a B. Although I suppose if they uh, spoke a different language, they would call that letter by a different name. Hmm. Uh, now, I have to say, uh, chatting with linguists, they tend not to call them P's and B's. That's absolutely true. They t tend to use this fancy nomenclature uh, of describing consonants. Can you... Can you whip that out for us? Yeah, absolutely. And we've actually gone over the basics of it in describing its action, because the description of a consonant or vowel is really a description of its action. So these are uh, voiced or unvoiced, 
bilabial stop plosives. So the voiced bilabial stop plosive is b, and the unvoiced bilabial stop plosive is p. And you can see it's encoded in the description how to do it. Mm. So if, you, uh, if you're trying to remember the order, VPM is uh, voicing, place, and manner are the three components that you have to put together. Um, so we, I think that's pretty, pretty clear what, how yes. to do that. Um, yeah, and uh, the, the other thing we, we uh, usually talk about with each of these shows is the idea of variations that arise in different languages, uh, or at least in different variations of English, I should say. And uh, again, there's not a huge amount of variety, is there, Phil? No, it really has to do with uh, how much air pressure is built up. That's the main variation. But and perhaps a little bit about timing. Yes, yes. And I think that you'd find, though, that uh, there's variation within the way I make those sounds in a connected speech sentence, uh, mm. as well as difference from language to language. So if I could take the p sound as an example. Okay. If I say pear, the fruit, uh, and it's a fairly important stressed word, there'll be a little puff of air as it explodes before the voicing comes in, pear. If I were to say the Spanish word for dog, perro, that perro is really not, there's not much explosion of air following that, that closure. So generally speaking in Spanish, uh, p is not aspirated. There's right. a, an almost immediate beginning of voicing after the explosion. It's very close to our pronunciation of bear. Exactly, and that can cause some confusion. Uh, again, it's a question of the timing of the actions, uh, because these are articulations that have at least two components to them. Uh, how you time those components makes a difference. So, if I were to say bear, the voicing is starting immediately, uh, just as the explosion occurs. If I say pero, the explosion is happening and then isn't really a puff of air, but there's no voicing during the exploding part, and it's immediately followed by voicing. And then if I were to say pair, there's some aspiration right afterwards. Great. Um, so that, that uh, is in a stressed syllable. Now, yes. what happens if, it, if we get a P in uh, the middle of a word, but it's not... Uh, the stressed syllable. So a good example of this would be the word pepper. If you were to separate those and uh, take a recording of pe and per, uh, you would find that the second one isn't aspirated and the first one most likely is. I, I say most likely because there's variety in every individual's pronunciation mm -hmm. and it's uh, a little dangerous to make rules that are uh, universal uh, because they may not match what people are actually doing in, in the, the real world. Uh, another it's worth, it, worth noticing one thing is that, uh, you know, we're, here we are recording, we're trying to capture our voices with the recording equipment, and there may be some uh, limitation of the amount of puff of air that we have on these peas, um, partly because uh, we're using little blockers to limit <laughs> yes. the amount of uh, popping on our peas so that uh, the, 
the uh, recording is not peaked out by that strong puff of air. It's, it's hard for a microphone to handle that intensity of the airflow, the high pressure. And they are um, intense sounds. If you were to listen to people whispering and chattering, these might be among the few sounds that you could overhear. I think that's why the word whisper is uh, an example of onomatopoeia. The is part of what you hear, and it sounds like the word whisper. The, the, the job of a vocal coach for the theater is frequently about uh, audibility, and so uh, encouraging people to add a little bit more zest and oomph to their peas is often part of what we're asked to do. Um, though uh, we do have to find a balance that they're not saying pepper uh, and putting too much pea on yeah. an unstressed pea. Uh, sometimes asking people to oomph things up can lead to, well, perhaps not disastrous results, but you, you don't want to overdo it, do you? No, not um, at all. So the, the, the last uh, place, of course, is the final P in words, and uh, that, that lots of possibilities about what can happen there. Indeed, and uh, you would imagine, based on what we've said already about uh, prominence or stress, that the final P is after the job of the word is done and may not well be stressed. So stop. Uh, there's not much explosion of air usually when people are speaking. Again, and, and at the end of an utterance or a phrase, you might have none. Indeed. Now, you and I, as you just mentioned, might be talking to actors about adding that in in order to help an audience understand what word they've just heard. Mm. The, uh, the, the kind of thing we're trying to do is get people to just put a little bit of a release. In, in singing, for instance, often they'll put a little bit of what they call a ghost vowel on these final released consonants so that we get sort of a stop uh, kind of sound Indeed. that really enhances that consonant. For us, in speaking, generally we're looking for just a little puff of air on that final release at the end of a phrase or, or at the end of a sentence so that that puff of air is, is audible. Um, and it does often create a, a little button, perhaps, on the end of the yes. utterance. It feels like it, it ends rather than sort of fading out and dying. And one way to think about it is, again, returning to your metaphor of the stream, that we want to continue the flow of breath, the flow of idea, all the way to the end until we stop. So that we don't stop the flow before we explode the final sound. It is. Yeah. Uh, of course, if we're working with actors for uh, on-camera work or, or on mic recording work, then of course that's not required. And so generally actors don't have to learn to not release those final consonants. However, I have worked with older actors who've done a lot of theater work, and they have to be reminded sometimes that it's not always appropriate to release every final consonant. There's a little side note I might bring in here that uh, uh, we talked... Uh, in the previous episode about the difference between checked and free vowels. Mm. Uh, plosives, like p, are what checks a vowel. So uh, we could hear a difference in the way uh, the plosive affects the vowel without actually hearing the plosive. So the difference between creed and creep, even if we didn't make that final sound clear, cree, creep, we might hear the word based on the length of the vowel surrounding it. 
So no segment of speech is completely in isolation. They're always having an influence on each other. Yeah. Well, I, th um, no, I, I think there's one thing that we, we, we plan to talk about. I don't know whether we need to squeeze it in. Um, and that's paired consonants. Um, and that is a variation that might be worth talking about very briefly. Yeah, I think so. And I think we have the perfect example in the description of the sound stop plosive. There's an instance where we have a p ending stop and a p beginning plosive. Uh, sometimes sounds, consonant sounds that are together like that are called geminates, like they're twins, Gemini. And uh, we have a variety of strategies for dealing with that, for making those two articulations clear. We could, for example, stop the p of stop and not explode it, but simply explode our lips apart to give the hearer the idea of a new sound. So that's the way I think if you went back through this recording, you'd hear us saying it, stop plosive, rather than stop plosive. Uh, let's take uh, the example of a B, uh, job bonus. <laughs> uh, we might, in order to make those sounds clear, say job bonus, and let the B explode into a little bit of vowel. Uh, if we did it too far, though, we'd uh, start to sound uh, like we were Italians, job bonus. Yes, and I think often we we hear people make rules about those things that you must always release a p, you know, stop plosive. Um, though I think that if I was making a point of saying uh, I'm I'm highlighting this initial word as opposed to the second word, I might be able to get away with that. Um, and uh, if, for instance, uh, I was not I was trying to make a point of saying. Um, uh, trying to think of a good example here, um, that if I was going to uh, change the word stop plosive with uh, uh, a word like a pop plosive, I was making a kind of play on words, I might say pop plosive yes. to highlight that word pop because I'm twisting the expectation and I need it to stand out. So by putting it that extra puff of air on the second P of pop, it separates it from our expectation of stop plosive and pop plosive to accentuate pop plosive another example of that would be a word that otherwise wouldn't be very clear i i the only one i can think of it's difficult to think of a, an obscure word uh, but the word hip boots i might want to say hip boots even though one is unvoiced and the other is voiced i, I need a little explosion of air there because otherwise you might not know what hip boots are yes Yes. So again, it's a, a kind of emphasis, really, for that initial word. And uh, my, my only concern with uh, actors who've been coached to release that first P in the twin is that it, it places an emphasis that may not necessarily be wanted. Um, and so to sort of uh, blindly apply the rule of always releasing those the initial uh, sound of twinned or geminate consonants is, uh, I don't know, it's, it's inappropriate. It's certainly um, a Though skill. I do think it's, it, sorry, I think it's worth saying the, that, uh, you know, Italian and other languages where there are uh, 
sp a specific pronunciation for twinned or paired consonants in the words. For instance, uh, that you, you get words where uh, there's a different meaning. For instance, latte has two T's. So you stop the T, the initial T, and then release the second one. Uh, uh, you'll sometimes get uh, in a foreign accent someone speaking English they'll say a word like happy and they'll say happy because they're trying to articulate the two P's because that's how they learned English from the spelling yes. and they see oh happy it's got two P's well I have to say happy uh, and uh, that's uh, uh, an unfortunate error to assume that English is like another language uh, another example is, is Arabic, and there's the important word Allah, which is uh, a geminate on the U sound. But I shouldn't get ahead of myself because U is something we'll deal with in a future episode. We're just about at the 30-minute mark, so I think that we might want to wrap things up. In order to wrap things up, yeah. though, I'd like to just remind everybody, in our first episode, you mentioned that you were planning on creating an email address for us, that is glossonomia at gmail.com, and you've gone ahead and done that, yes? I have. We, we got the name, and uh, uh, you know we, we had to fight it out with a few other phoneticians who wanted that word. <laughs> uh, I prevailed, and uh, so glossonomia it is, and uh, they can reach us that way. Now, if they are creative types and want to send a comment, an audio comment by email, they can do that too. Um, I've, I've been known to whip out my iPhone and use the voice recorder and I can email a comment directly from it. And I bet there are other phones out there too that would allow you to record a voice comment and then email it directly from your phone so that it's a, a kind of a one-step way of that doing it. That would be it. terrific, so because we do have a, a format here, which is fairly simple, but really what this is about is talking about things about speech that interest us. So if there's anything that interests you or things you'd like us to talk about, join in. That would be great. Well, thanks, Phil. It's been fun. Likewise, uh, and I'll see you next episode.